Pastor Wang Yi in China, recently sentenced to nine years in prison, loses his citizen or, or political rights for three years, find what would be in our pocketbooks in American dollars some $7,200. <clears throat> what is his crime? Faithfulness to Christ. Faithfulness to Christ. See, he lives in China. He lives under a totalitarian regime, a, a regime that will have no competitors, certainly not a God who is above them. So they are seeking to squelch religion in China. They're, they're persecuting more than Christians, but they are persecuting Christians, and the Christians are getting in trouble for being faithful, for speaking truth, speaking the gospel, gathering in worship, expositing the word, <clears throat> challenging the power in a godly way with the truth of Scripture, <clears throat> refusing to submit to the government's edicts if they contradict what Christ has commanded. In other words, they are not letting trouble and hardship push down their faithfulness to Christ. And they are rejoicing even in the trouble because they knew that it would come. And they're trusting God to work through it. True Christianity is not legal in China. But they have embraced the danger for the sake of the gospel. So it's Pastor Wang Yi. He is pastor of Early Rain Covenant Church. And they see their highest authority as Jesus ruling through His Word. And they're risking all for faithfulness to Christ. I don't know if we'll ever hear from the man again. A lot of people disappear once they're under the thumb <clears throat> like that. A lot of the world, China's not the only place where true Christianity is very dangerous. And apart from a revival, it will become increasingly so here. That, that hardship will challenge our faithfulness to Christ. So we want to look at that today. Jesus said, and, and we'll, we'll quote a, a number of things from the gospel this morning. But he said to the apostles, remember the word that I have said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, and they did, they will persecute you. If you're faithful to me. If, you, if your life gives off the fragrance of Christ, you can expect what Christ <clears throat> received which was persecution. For most of us, it's small scale. You know, friends rejecting what we say or making fun of us for the gospel if we're faithful. But uh, Christ said, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. And what we see in this text is Paul is willing to walk into danger for the gospel. He's willing to face down the authorities. He's willing to take whatever comes at him rather than hide his faithfulness to Christ, compromise with unbelievers around him. And he, listen, Paul has to resist the advice of his friends to do this. His brothers and sisters are pleading with him. Now, they don't, they're not saying, don't be faithful to Christ. 
right? But we'll see what, what they're saying. They love Paul. They're, they're, they have affection for him and they don't want him to suffer and they want to don't seek it to avoid that. But like I said, last we left him in Miletus speaking to the Ephesian elders. He's completing his third missionary journey. That will happen very soon. He's heading to Jerusalem. And today, two more warnings. See, these are not the first warnings, and we'll, we'll bring that back out. But two more warnings as he heads to Jerusalem. What I want us to take away from this, though, the main point is Jesus warns us of the danger of following him. Not to always keep us safe from danger, but to keep our faith strong in the midst of trouble. He warns us of the consequences of being faithful to Him so that we know what to expect and so that when trouble does come because of Christ and the gospel, it doesn't derail us. So Jesus warns us of the danger of following Him, not to always keep us safe from danger, but to keep our faith strong in the midst of trouble. And we see this exemplified in the life of Paul, who used to be Saul, the enemy of the church. But look at back in, in chapter 21, in verses 1 through 6, Paul is warned at Tyre. He's warned at Tyre. And Luke is fond of giving us these sort of travel recaps. And you see that, that Luke sort of details every step of the journey. Luke is a very detailed person. He's a physician. He's used to detail. He, he takes care of things. He doesn't write in general terms. He writes in detail. That's why he's been called a historian of the first rank. He gets it right. Even when people think he got it wrong, they later find something that shows them he got it right. Because not only is Luke detailed, God is detailed, ensuring that his word is true. But he's warned uh, at Tyre, and, and I'll, the map, I have a map here. You can kind of see the tail end of the, the third missionary journey left from Antioch all the way up and back down. We left him at Miletus here, coming down to Patara, you see, by Cyprus. And he ends up right here. So you can see how close he is to Jerusalem. We're going to go straight down. We're going to end right here today. Right before he goes back to Jerusalem. But he's made all of the loop of the first missionary journey. We're seeing him travel back to this location and then to this location today. And Luke gives us the details of that sale. Read them to you. I'll let you read them again if you would like. But it says they've gone all the way to Tyre. And look in verse 4, it says, And having sought out the disciples, sought out their brothers. They sought out community. They sought out like-minded people. They sought out the Christians. Disciple is just another word for Christian. You know, there's not a two-tier thing in Christianity. There's not believer and then disciple. Right? Same thing. Two different ways of saying the same thing. You can't have Jesus as a ticket to heaven now and decide later whether or not you're going to have him be Lord of your life. He just is Lord. You accept him for who he is. But they sought out the disciples. They sought out fellowship. They sought out believers that they could go brag on God with and report all the things God had done in the journey and stay with and be refreshed and encouraged by. So they're in Tyre. They've stopped there because the ship needs to unload its cargo. And having sought out the, the disciples, verse 4, they stayed there for seven days. Now watch this. 
And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So we're into Talian. He's heading to Jerusalem. He has the gift for the saints in Judea. He's going to deliver that gift to the church in Jerusalem to be dispersed to the people in need there. He loves the brethren there. He loves the Jews there. Wants them to come to faith in Christ. We see that in Romans. But the believers there say, don't go to Jerusalem. And right there where it says through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. What that probably means is that they were, they were prophecies being given, like what we'll see later in the text, that people were saying things that were causing, and people they trust to be giving accurate information, were saying things that were causing the church to be concerned for Paul and to say, don't go. Don't go. Literally, it says, don't set foot in Jerusalem. So I want you to make a note of that because there's going to be, when you're studying Scripture, when you're studying Scripture and you'll see what looks to you, and I say looks to you like a contradiction, unbelief will stop there and say, see, not the Word of God, I'm going with my party life. Hey, Faith digs deeper. And when you dig deeper, you always find out it's not a contradiction after all. Wow. The Word of God is deeper and truer than I ever believed. But right here, there's a conflict. Uh, I'm sorry. I, I always, a lot of times I revert back to old songs. Should I stay or should I go, right? That's, you know, that's what the, the, con, the, the tension is here. Should Paul go somewhere else or should he go to Jerusalem? And here the believers are saying, brother, don't go. Don't go to Jerusalem. It's not safe for you to go to Jerusalem. You should not go to Jerusalem. And this is not the first warning. Look back to Acts 20, 22 to 23. Paul has decided... In this third missionary journey, he's, he's taking up this offering for the people. He's decided in, by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. He's following the Lord. He's doing what He's leading Him to do. Now watch this in, verses, in Acts, back, just back in chapter 20. In 22 to 23. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Everywhere I go, the Holy Spirit is testifying to me, maybe personal revelation, the Apostle Paul, he's an apostle, right? Or through Christian prophets, they're, they're testifying to me that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So somehow, in every city, Paul is getting a warning of trouble to come in Jerusalem. See what he says there. The Holy Spirit testifies in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But notice what it does not say in verses 22 and 23. What the Spirit has not been telling him. It does not say, the Spirit testifies to me not to go to Jerusalem. It doesn't say that. Just the Spirit is telling him what to expect. He's telling him what's going to happen before it happens. And there's always a purpose in that. But the Spirit, he says in Acts 20, the Spirit is not saying don't go. 
It's not there in verses 22 to 23. In fact, he says, I'm constrained by the Spirit. What does that mean? I'm compelled by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. So the believers entire are saying, it says, through the Spirit. They're saying, don't go. And Paul is saying, the Spirit is commanding me to go. The Spirit is compelling me to go. Paul says, the Spirit is making me go to Jerusalem. And the believers are saying, the Spirit says, don't go. And listen, I respect, there, there are some good brothers who say, for reason, reasons like this, there are some good brothers who, who say, Paul made a mistake. He shouldn't have gone to Jerusalem. There was no need for him to be imprisoned and go through all that. I just don't embrace that. And I think there's a reason for that. And, and I think the text makes it clear. Many times when, this will help you a lot. Many times when you're reading the scripture and you encounter a problem, just keep reading. And it will straighten itself out. We get too myopically, we take it out of context and we get too focused in and we can struggle, struggle, struggle. And we'll just keep reading. I mean, Hebrews 6 is a place like that. It'll straighten it. It, it. God will tell you what's going on. But some people do interpret these texts to say that Paul made a mistake. I just don't believe that. I don't think the Word teaches that. And nowhere in the Scripture is, he, is that pointed out. In fact, Jesus has told him how much he must suffer for the gospel and what's going to happen to him and that he will testify before kings. And all of that happens. God is sovereign. He is in control. And Paul is following him and following what he is telling him. And yet the believers entire are saying, don't go. I think we get clarity as we read on and see what happens in Caesarea. I think we see, we begin to figure out what's going on as we keep reading. So let's do that. Secondly, Paul warned in Caesarea. Now he goes again. They leave. There, there's more traveling. There's more details of love and concern and kneeling down and praying together. And he says in verse 7, When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, arriving at Ptolemaeus, we greeted the brothers and stayed for them for one day. On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Knowing who Philip is, knowing where he lives, coming through Caesarea, they, they, they decide that they will stay with Philip. What is one of the seven? Do you remember when the apostles were overwhelmed in Acts 6, trying to take care of the widows and the Greek widows and the Jewish widows? And I mean, things, people were going uncared for, and you know, the apostles are focused on prayer and the word and the ministry of the gospel. Rightly so. And by God's direction, they need more help, kind of like Moses did. Jethro had wisdom for him. But, but they need more help. So they ordain these seven men who are the proto-deacons, kind of the first deacons who will watch over that ministry and see to it that all of the widows are cared for. 
Philip is one of those guys, one of those faithful men, one of those men who were described as full of the spirit and wisdom who could help the apostles and see to the, the, the practical needs so that the apostles could focus on prayer and the word. So he's one of these seven and he's also the evangelist we saw in Acts 8 that God was greatly using in Samaria and, and with the... Um, the um, uh, I lost the Ethiopian eunuch. Right? Philip got beamed around a little bit. I'll let you read that. <laughs> but this is the guy. And it says something interesting. He's, a, he's, a, he's a, one of the seven. He's an evangelist. Uh, and they stayed with him. And watch this. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Philip had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. It's very interesting that these three, I think three of these daughters lived into their 90s and became a source of material for early church fathers on what had happened and how it had happened. Kind of a famous, and church history is great, you read it. But some, three of his daughters lived till very old and they were used by God to carry more information to the early church fathers. They were eyewitnesses to a lot. And very valuable. That has nothing to do with the sermon. I just think it's interesting. But it says he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. What in the world? They prophesied. Well, this is kind of the fulfillment of what Joel predicted in Joel chapter 2 and what we see happen on the day of Pentecost. If you look back in Acts chapter 2 verse 17, quoting Joel and Peter is saying what was spoken by the prophet Joel is what you're seeing and hearing now. Right? And it says in verse 17, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, not just the anointed offices, but on all flesh who are believing in Christ, on all of the church. He says, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. So all of the miraculous stuff that's going on on the day of Pentecost, proving Christ is who He said He was, and His promises are true, and the, they're preaching the gospel, and everybody there is hearing it in their own language, and they're all freaking out and wondering what's going on. Some say they're drunk. Others say they're filled with the Spirit and and the the answer is in the word that this is what was prophesied and notice it says one of the one of the outflows of the outpouring of the spirit would be your sons and your daughters shall prophesy all the way down to the servants if you keep reading in verse 18 what does it mean to prophesy well the word there used here in acts and Earlier in chapter 2, the word there, profituo, it means to speak under the influence. Now watch this. To speak under the influence of divine inspiration. With or without reference to future events. Often we think of prophets as simply sort of fortune tellers. They're just going to tell what's going to happen. No, really the prophets in the Old Testament were God's sort of prosecuting attorneys. They were prosecuting Israel for unfaithfulness to the covenant and calling them back to faithfulness. And they would prophesy God's works and what would come in the future. But all of that was with a purpose to, to bring the people to faithfulness. But it says to speak under the influence of divine inspiration. Or, without, or to prophesy is to make inspired utterances if an utterance is inspired 
What is also true of it? It is true. I make that point to say, it says that his daughters were prophesying and, and it's used of others and those who will prophesy in Acts. They will speak under divine inspiration. They will make inspired utterances. And if they're making inspired utterances, if they're saying, thus says the Lord, what they say is true. Some make a case for fallible prophecy in the New Testament. If it's fallible, it's not prophecy. It's talk. Or false prophets. You know, there are true prophets and false prophets, but there's only true prophecy. If it's divinely inspired, it's true. That's all I'm going to say about that because the sermon is not about that. But they prophesied. They spoke under divine inspiration. Maybe they too gave Paul warnings. This is what's going to happen to you in Jerusalem. And it just keeps stacking up. Look at verse 10. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. So here's a well-known prophet. He's a prophet in the early church. He's part of the foundation of the early church. Read Ephesians 2.20. The apostles and the prophets are part of the foundation. You build on the foundation. You don't just keep laying foundations. There are no prophets today. I mean, apostles today. Think about that. Incompletion of divine revelation. They didn't have a full Bible. Man, I could so. I'm going to get way aside of the sermon. Read 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14. I'll leave that to you. We can talk about it if you want to. But another famous prophet comes, and his name is Agabus, and he comes down from Judea, and this is one trusted to speak the truth, and we've already seen him in the book of Acts. So I'll let you go back and look at that. But he came down to us, and, and down is, is sort of a, it, it's not like north-south language, it's higher to lower, down from Jerusalem to Caesarea. He comes down there, and Agabus does this, and thus says the Holy Spirit, well that sounds just like an Old Testament prophet, doesn't it? Thus says the Lord, thus says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So Paul don't go to Jerusalem. Is that what he said? No, see, this is what is happening. This is what is happening wherever Paul goes. The Holy Spirit is saying, this is what awaits you. And, and Agabus does like an, you know, Old Testament prophets read them. They often act out their prophecies. They often, I mean, some of them went streaking to make a point. But they often act out their prophecies. And so Agabus is giving a vis visible demonstration of what's going to happen to Paul. You, this is how the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt. It's Paul's belt, verse 11. He took Paul's belt. And deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And we're going to see all of this happen when we look when we look forward in I mean it's in the same chapter when all of this kind of takes place. Again, people try to make 
people try to say Agabus got it wrong. Agabus didn't get it wrong. He got it right. The Jews caused Paul to be bound. Like, just like, you know, David killed Uriah, right? But did he physically do that? No, but see, in the Hebrew and in Scripture, if you're the cause of it, you're responsible for it. You did it. And we'll answer to God. Paul is going down. They make assumptions about him. We'll see him arrested. We'll see all this play out. But in the true fashion of an Old Testament prophet, Agabus tells what's going to happen, and it happens. This happens. It's a true prophecy. It's not a mistaken prophecy. But that's not the sermon. This is how the Jews will bind the man who owns the belt and deliver him in the hand of the Gentiles. Now, he doesn't say don't go to Jerusalem. He simply shows what will happen. So it seems to me that this is what's going on in every city. That in every city, the God through His prophets, through His people, in Paul's own heart, is saying, is warning Paul of what is going to happen to him in Jerusalem. But what the Spirit was not saying, and what Agabus did not say is, don't go. So the Spirit's at work, and what's happening is true, but the people make a conclusion. They make a conclusion. They say, if this is what's going to happen, you shouldn't go. That's on the people. Even Luke is part of that. Look at this. He says this. He puts himself in that. He said, when we heard this, we and the people urged him not to go to Jerusalem. See, the saints interpret the prophecy as he shouldn't go. But Paul knows and is compelled in, in, by the Lord that he should go. So he remains unconvinced. Look at verse 13. They're weeping and pleading and telling him not to go. And Paul says, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm ready to not only be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. His face is set like flint to go to Jerusalem. Does that remind you of anybody else? Knowing danger is ahead, willfully walking into it. Not avoiding it. I'm not saying you're always supposed to do that, but when it's faithfulness to Christ requires you to do that, you are to do that. And God had convinced Paul that this is what he was calling him to, so he was committed to doing it. And he says, stop it. I'm going forward. But this is just like Jesus in his trip to Jerusalem. Jesus said, look at Luke 18, 31 to 33. Taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going to Jerusalem and everything's going to be fine. He said, everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. See, Jesus knew what he was facing. He knew what was going to come. And he, he walked right into it. And that's what he's calling Paul to do. He's telling him what's going to happen ahead of time so it won't take him by surprise. He's telling him the cost of faithfulness 
But he's still telling him to go. And see, we get the people. I understand the people. And, you know, imagine one of our brothers or sisters here that have been called to the mission field and, and we are told that if you come here, you will die. And we're going to say, no, you can't go. And they're going to say, but I'm convinced it's God's will. I see, I can see pleading based on the prophecy with Paul not to go. But there's no contradiction here. It's just the saints are falsely applying the prophecies that are being given because they want to keep Paul safe. But like Jesus, he's walking in the will of God to what God has ordained for him. Not Star Wars language, his destiny. It is, but it's because God has ordained it for him. And it says in verse 14, since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. And we're going to see Paul go to Jerusalem and we're going to see him deliver the gift and we're going to see him trying to do everything he can do to reach others for Christ. And we're going to see what Agabus prophesied taking place. But we're going to push Paul's right there for today. See, the predictions were true of Paul's coming sufferings. The conclusion that he shouldn't go to Jerusalem came from people who loved him and didn't want him to suffer. It's true prophecy, but it's falsely applied. And the underlying, see, and this is where it sort of attaches with our lives. The underlying philosophy seems to be avoid suffering at all cost. What we should do is avoid suffering at all cost. I hope you see the fallacy of that. Or, or, or we have this thought. If God is in it. It'll be easy. If God is in it. He'll take down all the barriers. He'll take down all the hoops. It'll be easy. There won't be danger. We have a higher calling than comfort and safety. We have a higher calling than comfort or safety. We have Our calling is faithfulness to Christ who has loved us so. Don't expect life to be easy. See, this is one of the things that nearly derailed me when I first came to Christ. Man, I can't, we came to Christ and life went crazy. But, you know, through evangelists and others, they kind of gave me the impression if I would come to Jesus, all my problems would be solved. Man, they just started. Life blew up and it, it freaked me out for a while until I, I got some better teaching. But the assumption was, now it should be downhill. Now it should be easy. No. Faithfulness has a price. We, I want to recommend you do something, and I want to do this just for grins. There's a new coffee shop down, down by the post office where Highway 55 and all of that is. It's called Nuova Luna. That means new moon, right? I guess. There's a young lady down there who started that coffee shop. And she has, a, she has an amazing testimony of how she was convinced God wanted her to do that. Um, she needs some ladies with good theology in her life. But she stepped out in faith and started that coffee shop. And I want to, if you drink coffee, go buy coffee from her. Freak her out. Blow the place up. 
Just go buy coffee from her. But we, every time I go in there, she and Corey's been in, we go in together. She just, she'll just, bleh, I mean, she'll just lay it out there for you. She'll lay out her struggles. She'll ask advice. She asks for help in reaching people for Christ. And so she was going, Sam and I went in there this last time, and she's going through this great trial with her, her house and trying to figure out God's will and all of this. And she made this remark. After telling us how, how much she's struggling and how hard it is, she said, if God is in, if it's God's will, it will be easy, right? And we, both of us were like, no. In fact, if it's God's will, it'll, it'll, it'll require a lot of struggling sometimes. I mean, think about Paul's life. I mean, it's shipwrecked, beaten, left for dead. You know, 2 Corinthians 11 is the list. Go read it. If it's God's will, often it will be harder. Don't expect God to grease the... God, listen to me, look at me, parents. God doesn't spoil His children. Don't you either. You just make life harder for them when they really have to grow up someday. God doesn't spoil us. He doesn't put life on... I mean, I mean when we first come to Christ, there's some training wheels on the bicycle. But He pretty quickly takes those off and we start dumping and going, what is going on? We're learning to grow. See, if we're not careful, we'll adopt the ideas to avoid suffering at all costs. It's God, not God's will for us to suffer. That if He's in it, He'll just He'll kill all the giants. Open all the doors. Make it easy for us. No, often we have to fight to be faithful. We have to fight to sort of discover His will sometimes. The, the underlying false philosophy is why we don't witness. One of the reasons. Because it's not easy. And it has a cost. And not everybody's going to like us if we're faithful. So sadly, and I confess my own sin, and I'll leave you to confess yours, a lot of times we just let that squelch us. Because we want to be liked and accepted and not thought weird and Aren't you glad Jesus didn't have that mindset? But see, what we see happening in, in Tyre and uh, probably other places is, is good people hearing a true prophecy and applying it wrongly. Often well-intentioned people can be wrong about what God desires. Not, listen to me. Not all warnings are intended to prevent hardship. Many times we are warned ahead of time so that our faith doesn't fail in the midst of the struggle. Jesus said this in John 14. Now I've told you before it takes place, all the suffering and everything that's going to happen. He said, so that it won't take place. <laughs> no. I've told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. See, what he's doing is warning the disciples ahead of time so that when they do go through the suffering he predicted and, the, you know, after his resurrection, they have the Spirit and they understand the Word. They understand he was supposed to suffer, die, and be raised from the grave. And they, they understand to expect hardship. And so life turns out just the way Jesus said it would. And so when it happens, they're like, this is what's supposed to happen. It's really Okay. See, Jesus tells us the truth. We don't always tell ourselves the truth. And our friends don't always tell us the truth. 
out of concern for us or or other concerns. But Jesus always does. And He's told us what to expect. He said, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. John 16, I, I quote this all the time. He said, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you're going to have trouble. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world for you. I give you my word that you may have peace in the midst of your suffering and struggles because you're seeking to walk faithfully with me. In other words, Jesus says, embrace suffering for the sake of my name and for the gospel. I'll tell you from personal experience, don't go into church planting if you don't want to suffer. <laughs> if you expect God to make it easy. If you want everybody to like you. But any call to Christ, any call of faithfulness, to trust Him, to walk with Him, to be light and salt for Him, to raise our kids in, in His Word, nurture and admonition of the Lord, to be work, in the workplace and in the, the church and in the community like He calls us to be, all of that will bring a measure of suffering. But when we are being faithful to Christ and suffering comes our way, Jesus tells us how to respond to that. Matthew 11, verse 5, 11 and 12. Blessed are you when others revile you. What? And persecute you. And utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Blessed are you when you are persecuted. Early Rain Covenant Church is blessed in China because they're being persecuted for Christ. We don't see that, do we? If the, if the authorities come through that door and take us all to jail today because we're following Christ, do this. Rejoice and be glad. In Luke it says, leap for joy. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before, before you. Paul's suffering and persecution is coming. And Paul knows because he's well trained and we should know that, that that's a normal part of following Jesus. Suffering and persecution is a normal part of following Jesus. Jesus had set His face to go to Jerusalem not to have His best life now. But to be crucified and to suffer the wrath of God due His people. To take hell on that cross for all of His people and drink that cup dry because He's God and man. And to be able to say before He ever left the cross... It is finished. Paid in full. If you're trusting in Jesus this morning, your debt is paid in full. Not most of it. You're not mostly saved. Or you're dead. Any part of it that relies on our righteousness, we're lost. But see, Jesus lived for us. He kept the law in thought, word, and deed. Not because He needed to. But to glorify the Father, to fulfill the law, to, to provide a perfect righteous standing for His people. And then He went to that cross intentionally and He died, not just suffering the wrath of man, but suffering the wrath of God due our sin. And He drank that cup dry. And He was in the power, under the power of death for a time in the grave. And on the third day, He rose victorious. He blew the doors off the tomb, not to let Himself out, but so we could see He wasn't in there. 
And he appeared to the disciples over and over and over, giving them proof of his resurrection. And he left with them the gospel. And he told them what a blessing it was and what a responsibility it was and that it would bring a lot of suffering into their life, but to be of good cheer because he had overcome the world for them and for us. And then he went out from there and saved the Osama bin Laden of the early church day. Saul of Tarsus, who wanted to destroy the church, he brought, instead of dropping a bomb on him, if you're reading the news, he dropped a gospel bomb on him on the way to Damascus. He revealed himself to him and saved him and made him an apostle and a follower of him. A one who is willing to walk through and embrace suffering because for Paul to live is Christ and to die is gain. And we're called to the same kind of steely-eyed faithfulness to Jesus. Faithfulness to Christ. To love and honor Him no matter what the world threatens or dishes out. Our sufferings are blessed. They are temporary. They are light in comparison with the glory that will be revealed when Jesus returns for us. So remember Jesus who walked the path of suffering for righteousness. He walked it before us. He died to save us. He tells us the truth and His Word lovingly warns and arms us. Following Him will bring suffering. But it all must work for us now to make us more like Him. Remember His Word and be prepared for suffering when it comes because you've been faithful to Christ. Be filled with His Word so that you'll have His Word in you so that He has comforted and warned you so that when it does happen, you're not thrown off the rails, but you can rejoice and leap for joy because you are persecuted for Christ. I'll end where I started. Remember Pastor Wang Yi and the saints of early reign covenant church in China. Remember the persecuted church abroad. Look at their lives. Pray for their strength and their faithfulness. Don't make your primary prayer that they'll be delivered. You can pray that. You should. But know that some of them will be delivered through death. Some of them will be delivered from death. And God will get the glory for it all. But pray for them and be willing to embrace and imitate their faithfulness even in the face of suffering. Because... I don't know what's coming in 2020. I know what's already happened. And apart from widespread revival, we're going to face more suffering for following Christ. Be ready. Trust Christ. And rest in His grace. So that no matter what that is, if we're pursuing faithfulness to Him, we can say what the church said, what Paul said, what can ring out over all of life. His will be done to live as Christ. Let's pray. Lord, help us to trust You especially in the midst of hardship. And especially when that hardship is a result of us loving and following You, Lord Jesus. Help us to expect trouble if we follow You. Help us to see your promises that you are with us and for us. Any persecution of us is persecution of you. You count our tears. 
You, you give us so much more joy and enjoyment in this life than we deserve. So much more than we need even. And sometimes that just makes us want to be comfortable. But I pray that you'd work in our hearts the overarching desire to be faithful. And to live lives that glorify you. And are willing to face down the enemy. And rejoice in persecution. Strengthen us. Refresh us. Revive us. Renew us. Do a mighty work in your people and through your people. In this city. In this county. In this, in this state. In this nation. In this world. Help us to believe you, Lord Jesus, to love you because of your sacrifice on our behalf, to walk with you in the power of your spirit, to be filled with your word. And to be able to say. And mean it. The will of the Lord be done. Because for me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. Save and sanctify your people. Bless us and lead us in your paths. For they are paths of righteousness. They are your glory, for your glory and for our good. Help us to do what we sing. Help us to trust you. It's in Jesus' holy name that we pray. Amen.